Welcome to Remember Their Names, The Irish in Cleveland, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society. The Society is a non-profit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings. I'm Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archives Society. Welcome to Remember Their Names. It's a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. I promised last episode that I was going to talk this time about individual famine immigrants and family groups, and I will do that next episode. I realized first that there is another topic that fits in at this point. Last episode, I looked at the growth of the Cleveland Catholic Diocese and how the formation of the diocese and early parishes reflected the presence of famine immigrants in Cleveland. It occurred to me that in the last episode, I may have made the immigration experience of Irish Catholics seem rather easy and straightforward, like the famine immigrants arrived, a few parishes were formed, and they made themselves at home. In this episode, I want to acknowledge that settling in, even with the help of parish communities, was not that easy. In fact, the Catholic aspect of the Irish immigrant identity attracted more and more pushback as more and more Irish immigrants began arriving. In the eyes of many native-born Americans at the time, the famine immigrants had three strikes against them. First, they were Irish. Second, they were Catholic. And third, they were poor. And it was tough to sort out which caused the greatest offense. The canal immigrants of an earlier generation had not prompted as big a backlash as the famine immigrants did. While the canal diggers came to the U.S. for a better life, for the most part they had not arrived in desperate straits, whereas the famine Irish had. There were fewer canal immigrants. The canal workers were also out of the public eye in a way. They were toiling and often dying in work camps. And they were performing the kind of backbreaking work that the American-born folks were not particularly keen to do. Some backlash did arise as the canal work tapered off and some of the canal diggers began to settle in to stay. The Ancient Order of Hibernians, a Catholic Irish society, was formed in 1836 in New York specifically to protect Irish Catholics in America. If they needed protection, they must have been facing some hostility. Still, American sentiment against Irish Catholics became even more vehement in the 1850s. The famine immigrants arrived in huge numbers in a short time frame. Let's talk for a moment about how they arrived. There was no system for immigration in those days. There were no passports, no identity cards of any type. No one sought permission to leave one country or enter another. The only way to get from Europe to America was by boat, and large passenger boats could only land in large harbors. The companies who owned and operated passenger boats controlled how many people got on the boats and how much passengers paid for their tickets. The U.S. Steerage Act of 1819 required shipping lines to present a manifest with the names of the passengers upon arrival in the U.S. The Steerage Act also set minimum standards for how many people could fit into a boat and how much food should be provided per person. But these standards only applied to boats leaving the U.S., not to boats entering the U.S. The more crowded the boats and the less food provided, the more money the shipping lines made. So there was incentive to crowd the boats and provide less food. And corners were cut most on the cheapest tickets. 
in steerage class, which was the cheapest in the dark hold of the boat, passengers were crammed onto bunk platforms, several to a platform, with no bedding provided. There were no toilets, only slop buckets. Water was provided, but it might not be fresh. If food was provided, it was hard bread or thin broth. The voyage took at least six weeks at that time. People desperate to leave Ireland got on whichever boat came next, whether it was headed to the U.S. or Canada. Canadian ports didn't have the capacity that U.S. ports had, and boats backed up along the St. Lawrence River. If people weren't sick beforehand, they often got sick on the boat. It is estimated that about 10% of the passengers on the so-called coffin ships of the famine era died along the way. The Carriage of Passengers Act of 1855 attempted to address some of the worst abuses of the coffin ships. Stricter limits were placed on the number of passengers per square foot, and provisions for passengers and ventilation in steerage were now required. The laws were extended to ships arriving in the U.S., but those laws came too late for the famine Irish. Typhus outbreaks on these ships were particularly bad in 1847. Quarantine camps with fever sheds were set up in Canada, on Grosse-Ile, in the St. Lawrence River, and in Montreal. 20,000 people, at least, died in the fever sheds of Canada in 1847 and 1848. Those who survived and hoped to get to the U.S. set off by foot or by cart. There was no border control between the U.S. and Canada at that time. Anyone could walk over the border anywhere along it. Some famine immigrants in my extended family history had children born in Maine and Vermont. That's a sign that they came across the border from Canada before they moved on to the more familiar destination cities along the eastern seaboard. But competition for jobs was so fierce in Boston and New York that a family might decide to continue on to a less crowded city in the country's interior, a city like Cleveland. I know that what I've described pales in comparison with the conditions that enslaved people suffered on their forced journeys to the United States. Still, I hope I've given you a better idea of what I meant when I said in an earlier episode that the famine Irish arrived in a battered state. But there was more trouble to come as these largely Catholic immigrants attempted to settle in. The newspapers began to report acts of arson and vandalism against Catholic church buildings. In today's parlance, these were hate crimes. Church windows were broken, whole churches were burned, and when civil authorities asked around about who might have committed such crimes, everyone shrugged and denied knowing anything. That kind of denial gave the know-nothing name to the anti-Irish, anti-Catholic movement that spread in the 1850s in the U.S. In 1854 in Cleveland, a few days before the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade, an unflattering effigy of St. Patrick was hung from a pole on the parade route. It was publicly assumed that a know-nothing sympathizer had hung the effigy. Tensions between recent immigrants and native-born American citizens were noted in Cleveland again in 1855. The Cleveland Herald newspaper had written an article in 1855 about the Cleveland Grays militia and had stated that the Cleveland Grays company was, quote-unquote, composed of Americans. Now, there were German and Irish militia companies in the city in the 1850s as well, and I'll talk more about the Irish militia company in a future episode. But an Irish-born newspaper reader wrote to the Cleveland Herald to complain about the Herald's statement. 
the letter writer pointed out that the Cleveland Herald reporter seemed to assume that, quote, the other Cleveland companies were composed of aliens and were not citizens or Americans, end quote. That unfair assumption, the letter writer added, and I quote, was an inference untrue and a distinction unfounded. Know-nothing adherents attempted to form a political party, but didn't gain enough traction. However, the platform of the newly emerging Republican Party stressed patriotic nationalism and shared Protestant values. The talk of shared Protestant values made the know-nothings feel welcome in the new party. The Irish Catholics, on the other hand, felt excluded from a Protestant definition of American nationhood. Many famine immigrants gravitated at the time toward the Democratic Party. Still, the Irish could and did get behind patriotic allegiance to the Union, as we'll discuss in a future episode. The Republican Party was the dominant political party in Cleveland in the 1860s. The Irish were lumped together as Democrats, who were unsympathetic to the Protestant-led abolitionist or anti-slavery movement. The Cleveland Leader newspaper, an avowedly Republican newspaper, proclaimed, quote, It is a disagreeable truth, but it is the truth that the Irish in America, themselves the victims of oppression at home, have been the steadiest allies of oppression in America. Demanding liberty for Ireland, they are the bitterest enemies of liberty in the United States. They have voted against all reform and all progress in the direction of equal rights. End quote. But the leader never admitted that the Irish were also the victims of prejudice in America. It would remain socially acceptable to revile and exclude the Irish for many decades. I haven't run across any Catholic church burnings in Cleveland in the 1850s or 1860s, but I have read about one in Ashtabula County. Catholics had settled in sufficient numbers in Ashtabula County by 1858, so much so that Cleveland's Bishop Rapp started sending a priest out there to say Mass. A parish was officially incorporated in 1869, a sign that the Catholic population in the area had continued to grow. The original framed church in Ashtabula was dedicated to the Assumption of Our Lady. However, it was burned to the ground shortly after it was completed. The parishioners believed the fire had been set by an anti-Catholic arsonist. The church was eventually rebuilt in 1876 and rededicated to St. Joseph Calasanctius, a 17th century Spanish priest who was focused on educating underprivileged children. In addition to hate crimes, there was also the infamous, and I quote, no Irish need apply phenomenon, the practice of excluding Irish Catholics from jobs. A number of years ago, a history professor from the University of Illinois made news by claiming that no Irish need apply signs never existed, or at least to the extent claimed. The professor said that reports of such signs represented a kind of urban legend, a, and I quote, myth of victimization, he said. In 2014, a high school freshman in Washington, D.C. read an article by this scholar, and this is what the student told a reporter. And I quote, just for the fun of it, I started to run a few quick searches on an online newspaper database that I found on Google. I was really surprised when I started finding examples of Nina ads, that's no Irish need apply, in old 19th century newspapers pretty quickly. 
If you have a Cleveland Public Library card, you can search the Historic Plain Dealer online yourself, going back to 1845, and you can come up with plenty of ads with variations on the phrase, No Irish Need Apply. We conducted that search for our book, The Day We Celebrate, about the history of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Cleveland. We found many such ads and reprinted one in our book. Also in our book, you'll find a rather distasteful cartoon that was printed in Harper's Bazaar magazine in 1867. It depicts New York St. Patrick's Day Parade as a drunken brawl. Well into the 1870s, reputable mainstream publications such as Harper's Bazaar frequently printed editorial cartoons that portrayed Irish people as animals. And if they weren't depicted with the facial features of apes, they were portrayed as zombie-like minions of the Roman Pope. For several decades, the Irish Catholics who arrived during the famine and after were denigrated as alien and other. Ironically, the same high-minded mainstream publications that might have scolded the Irish for their lack of sympathy for enslaved people also did not hesitate to depict blacks in the same subhuman way. In one Harper's cartoon, Irish and blacks were explicitly equated as equally ape-like. So there was a lot of fear and prejudice to surmount. Nativists' antagonism toward the Irish would appear, recede, and then surge again. And if this antagonism wasn't directed toward the Irish, it would be trained on another new immigrant group, or another round of anti-Catholic prejudice would resurface. For instance, during the 1920s, the ultra-Protestant and nativist Ku Klux Klan targeted Irish Catholics along with Jews, though blacks would become their primary target as the civil rights movement grew. Some of the Irish organizations that I'm going to speak of in coming episodes were formed in an attempt to insulate Irish Catholics from such virulent outbreaks. Today, I hope you'll remember the famine immigrants and remember that they were, for a time, reviled as strangers. Several generations later, many Irish have lived the great American success story. It's easy to forget where many of us came from. So I'd like to make a personal plea here. I hope that our Irish heritage can lead us to think with empathy on the plight of immigrants today, of migrants fleeing desperate conditions in Central America, of black people who have yet to experience the full respect of citizenship and the full measure of American opportunity. Thanks for listening. I'm Margaret Lynch. Have a thoughtful day today. You've been listening to Remember Their Names, The Irish in Cleveland, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland. Find out more about the society or get in touch at irisharchives.org.